Broadcasting from the Barefoot is Legal Studios in Washington, D.C. This is District Sentinel Radio Live. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. Thank you for tuning in, Pistown fam, Sam fam, Pistown pals. Here's what's coming up on the show today. This week, Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, issued a decree loosening rules on gun ownership. Boo. Joining us to explain this is Wendy Muse, a historian and researcher on leftist and anti-racist politics in Brazil during the Cold War. Wendy is also the creator of the podcast Left POC. And then we will crack open the inbox and read... Some of the worst emails we received from Pistown merchants. The Pistown peddlers. Yeah, that's as, good. As we yes, like the, the Pistown peddlers will be reading some of their emails. And then at the end of the show, as we tend to do, someone gets thrown in the garbage can. I'm saying we've, we've got some heavyweights this week. Steve King, Ben Shapiro, John Chait, just to name a few. I mean, that's as good as it gets gonna get to uh the latest news here in just a second but first whether this is your first time tuning in or not consider subscribing over at patreon patreon.com slash district sentinel five bucks a month you get a lot of bonus content you get you get bonus content on a daily basis five bucks a month uh, including access to tomorrow's 420 hangout show which we do every thursday so patreon.com uh, slash District Sentinel. Um, we noted on uh, Twitter today that we've uh, got some tips about uh, news being made on uh, some exotic archipelagos <laughs> that we're currently raising money to go explore. <laughs> That's a total joke. That is but, a very uh, online joke. Yeah, I, I'm making I, extremely I think, online jokes here. I, I think... It, it would require thirty minutes of the podcast just to uh, I, just to even start to go down that route. Yeah, well, maybe not. Just uh, just referencing uh, RussiaGate grifters trying to uh, crowdfund their Hawaiian vacation trips under the guise of doing journalism. They're, they're going to investigate Tulsi Gabbard and uh, maybe bring down her share of the vote from three percent to two point seven percent. Got him. Got it's, her. It's it's vital work that yeah. they're doing. And it just so happens uh that they need to do that work in Hawaii. <laughs> uh no, I noticed they're not crowdfunding to investigate John Delaney, who I guess represents what Maryland or something. Yeah. He too will get one or two percent in the upcoming primary. Probably not even that much. Not going no, anyway. Let's uh, let's move on to the news, shall we? Yeah. So committee assignment update. Mm. A- AOC is on the House Financial Services Committee, meaning she'll help oversee Wall Street. Casio Cortez posted on Twitter, "Quote: Personally, I'm looking forward to digging into the student loan crisis, examining for-profit prisons slash ICE detention." In exploring the development of public and postal banking to start, smiley face emoji. Smiley face emoji uh, is right. We've been talking about postal banking on this show for years. I feel like we've dropped the uh, Bank of North Dakota one or, one or two times yeah, as well. And, uh, every time we talk about it, it was always, I never thought we'd ever get a politician on Capitol Hill pushing for it. Um, and we do. 
We do. So that's promising. Yeah, promising. No ways and means. Of course, that was her number one choice. Yeah. Uh, and overall, few progressives on key committees like uh, ways and means and energy. But House Financial Services should be fun. It'll be fun watching uh, AOC grill Steve Mnuchin. Is it Rashida Tlaib on there too? I think so. She got a seat on there. I think so uh, as well. I, see. Pelosi uh, packed a lot of these progressive new members on financial services, which is good. We'll, we'll, you know, grill a lot of bankers. But worth noting that she didn't live up to her commitment at all, Nancy Pelosi, in granting Congressional Progressive Caucus members 40% representation on the major committees. We talked about this uh, last week when we um, got news from, what was it, the Appropriations Committee, uh, uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, um, that... CPC members didn't get 40%. They didn't get 40% in these new ones uh, here. And interestingly, the CPC members who did get seated on these major committees were CPC members who were also like part of new Dem caucuses. Uh, so Hakeem Jeffries. The, yeah, uh, we're talking extremely centrist lawmakers. Down with NDP, Nancy D'Alessandro uh, Pelosi. Yeah. So uh, we got a bunch of centrist lawmakers who are progressives in name only and my theory is that like they joined the progressive caucus just so that they could get plum committee seats knowing that pelosi had promised the cpc all of these seats so uh she did a good job of packing them with moderates to to come close to her obligation but she didn't get to the 40 percent as as she promised so i don't know i'm not i'm not sure that deal that cpc struck uh to throw their support behind her as speaker worked out nearly as well for them as they all thought it was going to work out. I will say this, though, because both uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib have been on this show, so it's not so far-fetched to think that me saying this could in some way uh, get back to them. But uh, a tip is that Steve Mnuchin melts down when you bring up the uh, (laughs) robo-signing stuff that he did. He 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 uh he starts uh uh freaking out about the legal definition of robo signing. No guilty signing. conscience at all here. He's like, you don't even know what robo signing is. Have I told you how much sex I've had, by the way? <laughs> sex having Steve. Sex having Steve Mnuchin. Yeah. Treasury Secretary. Uh two high profile confirmation hearings underway in the Senate today. There was William Barr, who uh Yesterday, faced off with the Judiciary Committee for his confirmation hearing. Barr has mostly been peppered with questions about the ongoing Mueller probe. Barr's uh, Trump's nominee to be the next attorney general. Uh, But yesterday, he did say two things separate from the Russia investigation that were troubling. First, under questioning from Senator Cory Booker, Barr claimed that the U.S. justice system treats whites and minorities equally. (laughs) Which... All the data disproves, by the way, but that's what you'd expect from Barr, who was attorney general in the 90s as well. And that was a time in which the carceral state, as we know it, was uh, really invested in during Clinton. Um, so, yeah. And H.W. Bush, when he was holding up the uh, the crack rock that yeah. he bought. Oh, my God. <laughs> How easy is it to buy crack? Look the what White I House did. The White House address, the primetime Oval Office address in which George H.W. Bush pulled out a bag of crack cocaine. Just, just a giant <laughs> eight ball of crack. I sent my chief of staff out onto the streets <laughs> of D.C. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, we have Barr 
Alan there saying that he he thinks that the justice system treats uh, whites and minorities equally. Barr also, under questioning from Senator Amy Klobuchar, said he could, quote, conceive of a situation in which journalists might be jailed, like if news organizations blow through red flags. (laughs) Red flags. Barr didn't elaborate, but... Honestly, this isn't all that shocking since Barr basically has the same view as the last several attorneys general, including Eric Holder, who did try to jail journalists. We haven't really had a top law enforcement officer in that job who thinks jailing journalists is out of bounds. So it's about what you'd expect. Schumer came out today. Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, came out today opposed to Barr's nomination, not for any of the stuff I mentioned, but because Schumer doesn't trust Barr to handle the Mueller probe. Uh, Schumer, I'm not He's, even going uh, to read Schumer's quote here. Don't, it's not don't even, bother. Yeah, it's not even worth it. Um, also, former coal lobbyist Andrew Wheeler appeared before the Senate for his confirmation hearing to lead the Environmental Protection Agency, even though he's been the acting EPA administrator since July. In fact, <laughs> last July. <laughs> what? Uh, Wheeler is the longest-serving acting administrator in the history of the EPA, although Wheeler acknowledged that climate change is real. Step forward. Uh, He went on to downplay its importance, saying it wasn't a crisis and claiming that it's a global issue that needs to be handled globally, which is code word for let's not force our U.S. oil companies to do anything different. Anyways, these two ghouls are likely headed for confirmation. Interesting timing, though, for these hearings uh, scheduled right in the midst of a government shutdown. The Washington Post got a hold of lists showing VIP guests at the Trump Hotel in D.C. over 12 nights last year, included among the guests a gaggle of T-Mobile executives that bought the equivalent of 38 nights worth of hotel stays. (laughs) Now, these visits are newsworthy because the executives booked their stays immediately after T-Mobile announced a proposed merger with Sprint, one that requires green lighting from the FCC. In fact, T-Mobile's insufferable celebrity CEO, John Legere, stayed at the hotel the day after the proposed merger was announced. (laughs) Subtle. (laughs) The Post noted that Legere had passed tweets about Trump's hotels from before Trump was president, and uh, unsurprisingly, they were not positive. I'm so happy to wake up in a hotel where every single item isn't labeled Trump, Legere wrote in one tweet that has, uh, for some reason, been deleted since uh, Trump was president. I can't, I can't imagine why. Anyway, not trying to beat a dead horse here, but this is exactly why Rashida Tlaib was correct to say, impeach the motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, every single day, Trump is engaged in corruption and violating the U.S. Constitution by operating his hotel and having... Uh, business leaders, foreign dignitaries stay there to curry favor with the president. And no one seems to give a shit. I guess we need a few more Russian. If we could get more Russians photographed staying at Trump Hotel, maybe people would care. I don't know. Maybe. Mike Pence gave a foreign policy speech today. And look out, axis of evil. Here comes the wolf pack of rogue states. Oh, wow. 
Quote, beyond our global competitors, the United States faces a wolf pack of rogue states. Pence told U.S. ambassadors gathered in Washington uh, today for an annual conference, quote, no shared ideology or objective unites our competitors and adversaries except for this one. They seek to overturn the international order that the United States has upheld for more than half a century. The wolf pack, as defined by Pence, includes Iran and North Korea and and Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela and Latin America. Mm. Now, the wolf pack of rogue states might sound corny, but it's better than the other ideas they floated. The goose gaggle of bad countries, (sighs) the dog pack of evil and the goat herd of countries we want to bomb and invade for their natural resources. <laughs> I don't know. I'm uh, I'm on Team Wolfpack all the way, 100%. Sam Knight, not a wrestling fan, so doesn't get this reference at all. But I've got a picture of Sting, Lex Luger, uh, Steve Nash up there. Uh, Kevin Nash, not Steve Nash. <laughs> not the Phoenix Suns basketball player turned... Uh, uh, premier league soccer commentator but uh why don't we just uh i I might not be a wrestling fan but i have just two words for you just two words (laughs) suck it (laughs) the only thing that sam knows from the 90s wrestling uh phenomenon (sighs) all right shall we move on yeah Okay, someone fucked up, according to a guy who tweeted at Dave Weigel. Max G. Marshall drew this to the attention of the Washington Post reporter. Someone left Klobuchar for President logo mock-ups at a coffee shop in Northwest D.C. Marshall took photos of them and sent them to Dave. Here's the bold slogan that attempts to capture the magic of Amy Klobuchar per the photo, quote, Courage for our country. Makes me want to put knives in my eyes, so I think it accurately conveys the appeal of Amy Klobuchar. Klobuchar was asked about this. Her senior advisor, Justin Buen? Buxen? Uh, Sorry, I can't read that. I think I need glasses. Bowen? Bowen. Uh, Maybe my... Oh, Bowen. It's a weird weird spelled name. Anyway, (laughs) her senior advisor, Justin Bowen, told a CNN reporter, quote, while the Senate... (laughs) There are mountains in the logo. While the senator likes mountains, the last time we checked, Minnesota doesn't have a lot of them. Uh, This must have been prepared by an overly enthusiastic supporter, but it was not commissioned by our team. Going to have to run this by fact-checking. Not sure there is such a thing as an overly enthusiastic Klobuchar supporter. So uh, this smells like bullshit, and possibly uh, it was from them. Yeah, and they got caught, and they're like, "Oh, this was just a a a, te- a trial balloon." I just, I just pray that this maybe wasn't... they purposely left it there too to get I someone talking. That. Yeah, to get someone that. Talk- trial we- balloon for a Klobuchar twenty twenty. Courage for our country. <laughs> Let's see if we can get this viral. Let's go. <laughs> Assuming that wasn't the plan, and this was left behind by accident, I just pray it wasn't one of Klobuchar's staffers who's responsible. For this, um, speaking of which, the Klobuchar Compromat <laughs> envelope still hanging up over there, not to be opened until the Klobuchar 2020 campaign implodes. Yeah, that was that was one of my thoughts when I saw the uh, c- the courage for our country, uh, other than just uh, 
immediate revulsion was <laughs> that at least we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get to see a uh, a, a slow mo car wreck hmm. on national TV. That that should be that yeah. should be good. Finally, news about another potential 2020 candidate, Beto O'Dork, who's traveling around the country and blogging about it. Oh, God. Yeah, it's bad. Quote, travels with Charlie, except lame. Quote, a lot of big trucks rolling down Pancake Boulevard, and there aren't any sidewalks, Beto wrote in a Medium post published today. Uh, He's somewhere in Kansas. He goes on to say... Have been stuck lately, in and out of a funk. My last day of work was January 2nd. It's been more than 20 years since I was last not working. Maybe if I get moving, on the road, meet people, learn about what's going on where they live, have some adventure, go where I don't know and I'm not known, it'll clear my head, reset. I'll think new thoughts, break out of the loops I've been stuck in. Uh. Well, um, let me vomit a little bit here. Uh, old Pancake Boulevard. Uh, Beto did have uh, clear enough of a mind to sit with the Washington Post recently. Wait, wait, wait. I don't know if he was on Pancake Boulevard because it sounds like uh, more that he was on Corn Boulevard. Yeah. Corn Boulevard. Corn with with extra schmaltz. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. This is some corn. This is this is the corniest shit I've seen since James Comey was tweeting from uh, Iowa when he's like standing <laughs> on a road pointing out it, into the. This is like something if it was in a high school English class, you'd be like, "Wow, oh, he's got he's promising. He's he's got some talent." But there's uh... Beto's reverted back to when he was in a band and posting on Live Journal and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> emotional stuff. I don't. Anyways, Beto's like a forty year old dude. Um, <laughs> He he was clear-headed enough to sit down with the Washington Post in an interview. That is not the interview. In an interview that was published this week, no wall, few specifics. He was asked um, uh, about several policy debates underway right now from immigration to Syria. And Beto didn't have much to say. A lot of I don't knows, a lot of this is this is something that should be debated. He just needs to clear his head, you know. Yeah. Get out of these repetitive loops that I've been stuck in ever since my parents divorced two summers ago. <laughs> he was asked uh this weird question about like can America still fix itself is the constitution uh still working? And Beto had this odd response. He said, "Quote, I think That's the question of the moment. Does this still work? (laughs) Can an empire like ours with military presence in over 170 countries around the globe with trading relationships and security agreements in every continent, can it still be managed by the same principles that were set down 230 plus years ago? Yes, that's, that's the question. That's the problem. The problem is not empire. The problem is our constitution, which is not equipped to manage empire. I dare, fucking dare Beto to run for president. I dare him. We're going to eviscerate him on this show if he does. Oh, he, he, he's, yeah, he's, he's, go- he's going through the grinder. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll get to our interview here with Wendy in just a second. But first, time to check out the the tubes the email tubes it's from the inbox 
where we read you some of the shittiest emails we received this week. I'll go ahead and go first. I got an email from some organization calling itself the Physicians for Civil Defense. <laughs> Sounds like a shitty group that Michael Tracy would defend online. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, 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 the Physicians for Civil Defense are actually trying to adhere to small government <laughs> principles. <laughs> Uh, it, it came from the, uh, who is this? The fucking, this was the group's president, Dr. Jane Orient, who sent me this email uh, with an urgent warning about green energy, the health hazards of green energy, it's titled. It Sounds claims, legit. Yeah, it claims that there are some risks to consider with the Green New Deal, which are the following environmental and human costs of mining rare earths. These are exported, leaving U.S. totally dependent on imports for essential elements. I, I'm not as, even as sure a, what they're talking. I guess they're talking about elements that go into solar panels. But, I mean, as, this stuff's going yeah, on. As opposed to the oil industry, yeah. which uh, doesn't leave the U.S. totally imported. Etc. Etc. Toxic waste from solar panels, 250,000 metric tons already. Lead and carcinogenic cadmium from broken panels are leached into the groundwater. Yeah, this isn't true. And to the extent that this is a problem, it can be solved pretty easily with proper disposal techniques. But yeah, it's not like fossil fuel burning leads to any environmental damage or contamination, right? Uh, this email goes on to talk about the rotors of sickness, wind panels, <laughs> infrasound infrasound that can affect heart inner ear and brain again this is uh, coming from people who call themselves physicians which reminds me that ben carson was a brain surgeon at one time the email goes on fire hazards rooftop solar panels can overheat wind turbines are called the perfect incendiary device yes turbines are the perfect incendiary device <laughs> not like <laughs> Not like thermite or anything. <laughs> wind turbines. You know, they, they found uh, wind turbines in the rubble at the World Trade Center. Across. So uh, it, it, is the theory that the turbines blow uh, onto like a brush fire and cause it to move into a... to, to, to turn into a bigger fire? Is, is that no. the... Uh, you're, you're, going, you're thinking too hard about it. <laughs> you're thinking too hard about it. <laughs> Keep an eye out for uh, Physicians for Civil Defense, <laughs> an organization that clearly knows a lot about green energy. Uh, I've got one, a fun one this week on some hot political sports gambling action. Oh, hell yeah. Subject, odds, what food will President Trump serve to the Super Bowl champions? <laughs> now, uh, this comes... Uh, after he served McDonald's and Wendy's to the Clemson Tigers, the college football national champions, and the odds are from bookmaker.eu. Leading the pack, you have uh, burgers and pizza are at minus 150, meaning you have to bet $150 to win 100. Then you have mm. <clears throat> Subway sandwiches at plus 150, which means bet 100, get 150. Then you have Chinese food at plus 600, Taco Bell plus 900, Indian food plus 1,500, shawarma and gyros plus 2,000, 
these odds appear based solely on Trump's racism, <laughs> and I think they're pretty yeah. fair. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a guy who likes to take the long odds. I'm always looking to take that big hit, but I will not be placing a bet on a shawarma because there is zero chance that Trump is going to serve zero that chance. at the White House. I, I know there are a lot of uh, Indian Trump supporters, uh, but I also have very little belief that he will serve indian food to the super bowl champions uh <laughs> no. of all people no i don't think th- i noticed that when he had his fast food feast the other day for the clemson tigers there was no taco bell nope. which if you're asking college students what a staple of their meal is especially among fast food restaurants taco bell is up there it's not Wendy's. Yes, they hit Wendy's every now and then. Yes, you hit Burger King every now and then. But Taco Bell was the jam. I can't eat Taco Bell anymore. <laughs> I wish I could, but I just can't eat that shit anymore. I uh, I went to college in Canada, and there was no Taco Bell in Montreal. So I hmm. did. I have eaten plenty of Taco you Bell have, since. You have had your. You made up for it. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a college thing. I would ascribe uh, that to Trump's racism, though. Again, that there was no Taco Bell. Yep. Notably absent because you 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 have a feeling that because it's the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl champions, Trump will try to wow them with steak. Yeah, and I feel like steak and ketchup would be a pretty good bet. It, the the president's favorite. Not on there though. Not on there. Not on there. Hmm. Well, should we get on to our interview for? Yes, let's for this uh, week, Sam. Let's do that. Far-right politician Jair Bolsonaro was inaugurated as president of Brazil on January 1st. This week, he made news when he issued a decree changing rules on gun ownership. To help us understand what this means, we spoke to Wendy Muse. Wendy is a history PhD candidate at NYU doing research on leftist and anti-racist organizing in Cold War-era Brazil. And she's the creator of the podcast Left POC on Twitter at Muse Wendy and at Left POC. First, I was wondering if you could uh, break down for us Bolsonaro's decree on guns this week. What was the substance of it and what kind of institutional checks are there in Brazil on such a presidential order? Sure. So just to give you background, um, the decree itself is in response to laws that were passed in the early 2000s, 2003, and then a subsequent referendum in 2005, which I can go into a bit later. Um, But the decree that Bolsonaro signed on Tuesday morning basically um, talks mainly about possession of guns as opposed to gun sales, which is something that his uh, fans were pretty upset about <laughs> because many of them thought that it would just be easier to buy a gun and uh, carry an, a gun, et cetera. They were hoping for U.S. style uh, changes in the in Brazil. However, what ended up happening is the decree itself says, for example, that one one who has a gun license now can possess a gun license for ten years as opposed to five. Um, the other thing as well is that it adds a few more. Um, it adds a few more things to the authorization and possession of guns. So, for example, there's automatic renewal after 10 years now, whereas in the past you had to go and kind of restart the process all over again. Um, but mainly it sort of keeps 
in it, it keeps in in law a lot of the things from the previous law. So, for example, things that are still on the books include you can only have four four firearms per person, um, with the exception of those who can prove that they need more. So, for example, if you own another house, or if you have a business or additional businesses, and you need to have firearms for those particular um, business establishments, you can prove if you can prove that you can have more arms. Um, also, you have to still prove that your house has a safe in which to store the gun, especially if you have children in your household, if you have teenagers in your household, um, or if there's anyone in your household that has mental disabilities or mental issues. Um, so that particular, those particular aspects of the old law remain intact. But the main difference, the main change was just that it allows an extension of licenses, it allows automatic renewal. Um, and basically, once he signed the decree, Bolsonaro said, you know, the, the legislators can deal with the rest. But right now, I'm just focusing on kind of tweaking a few things from the previous law from 2003. So in spite of everything else going on in Brazil, we've we've seen his supporters uh, physically attack marginalized people that he targets with his vitriol. Uh, mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've saw it, for example, even before the election in March 2018, we saw the assassin, excuse me, the assassination of Marielle Franco, uh, who's a black, who was a black queer uh, left wing city councilor in Rio de Janeiro and no one was ever charged with her murder. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but it doesn't really sound like this order itself is going to be the thing or a thing that necessarily sparks a huge reactionary terror uh, in Brazil. I, th that might be overstating uh, the significance of this. Yes and no. I mean, I think on in large part, the significance is symbolic, right? Um, because he's basically given a signal to the legislature, by the way, you guys should be legislating on new laws to decrease the restrictions on gun possession and carrying. Because right now it's illegal, for example, to carry a gun unless you're a police officer, you're a security guard, or you work for the military. Um, and even then the registration is, is per weapon. So like, you can't just carry any weapon just because you are a person who's involved in these in this, you know, occupational capacity. You have to have a registration per um, per firearm. But in some ways, as I said, you know, it's symbolic. So, for example, I know you all mentioned the assault and violence that was meted upon the population by many Bolsonaro supporters. However, one thing to keep in mind is that four people were actually murdered uh, in cold blood by Bolsonaro supporters who actually said while they were committing this crime, in, in almost all cases, with the exception of one, they were stabbings. Um, they called out his name as they were stabbing people to death. Mm. Um, in, in one case, it was a black man in the northeast of Brazil. In two other cases, um, they were trans women of color. And then in the fourth case, it was a young man, also black and also in the northeast of Brazil. And he was actually murdered by a man with a gun. Um, so I don't know the registration status of that gun, but it's just, I think, in large part, if you have a candidate who's saying in the lead up to his election that he's going to shoot all of the people who live in a particular favela in Rio by the name of Hosinha, or he's going to, you know, shoot at leftists. And then he, there were several cases also of his uh, supporters threatening leftist candidates. So I think it's really important for us to understand that it's not quite uh, a matter of what the decree says, so much as it is a signal, I think, to the populace and his supporters who are in the legislature to do even more to allow his supporters to have access to guns. Bloomberg reported, uh, well, they said in their reporting on this, they mentioned that uh, owning a firearm is prohibitively expensive in Brazil and that mm -hmm. the, the decree won't make uh, much of a difference for the average Brazilian. But among the other uh, groups that Bolsonaro has 
targeted are landless movements and uh, indigenous people in Brazil, indigenous uh, political activists. So I'm wondering if the idea that one per the average Brazilian owning a firearm being prohibitively expensive so sort of overlooks the potential for uh, rich landowners and agribusiness uh, and, and, and corporate farmers to basically assemble paramilitary forces uh, and, and that, that this is a signal that, you know, you should start that Bolsonaro is signaling to, to his his supporters among this constituency that they should start doing this. Right. I think the other thing, too, to keep in mind about that, that's all true. Um, but the mat- the fact of the matter is, is that agribusiness corporations and farmers um, in a lot of these rural areas that are trying to clear land that's currently possessed and lived upon by indigenous groups and um, a group of people who are known as quilombos in Brazil, who are the descendants of freed sl- or, uh, runaway slaves who established these um, sort of independent spaces on Brazilian in, in many Bra- Brazilian rural spaces. The issue is that these groups have always been hunted um, precisely because of their living upon this land um, that is rightfully theirs, of course. And so I think it's we have to be careful not to try to to sort of reroute history and kind of think of this this Bolsonaro election as the beginning of time. Um, we saw this even with the discussion of the death of Marieli Franco, who, was, who many believe was actually murdered by uh, militia members who oftentimes are former police or even sometimes can, people who are actually still on the police force, um, but who formed these sort of basically paramilitary groups in urban areas um, and function as a sort of parastatal apparatus um, to inflict violence upon the population and in a sort of attempt to control gangs. This is, of course, what they say. Um, So I think it's important for us to not uh, overinflate the violence that's been happening at the by the hands of these groups. But at the same time, I think it's a matter of him sort of giving them, Bolsonaro in this case, giving them license and basically signaling to them that whatever you do, you won't be prosecuted. And it's not that you were prosecuted that much before, um, because many of the times, as I said, these groups are deeply connected with the, the state um, militia or state military and the state uh, police forces. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm always very careful about um, designating a timeline. But I do think that what we're going to see is an intensification of and a total lack of uh, accountability for these groups that commit violence off, you know, sort of off the state record and and out of, um, you know, sort of extrajudicial violence, as we say. That's a pretty frightening thought. Um, Putting aside the what Bolsonaro's ulterior motives might be in the potential creation of paramilitary paramilitary groups, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant of the history of uh, Brazilian gun control, and mm-hmm. perhaps this is a bit of an American-centric question, but if this leads to the loosening of, of, gun, of gun laws and the proliferation of more guns, which, as you noted, might not be in the short term what's happening. These are more tweaks uh, to, a, to a law, but there's indication that he could go further. What effect might that just have on Brazilian society in general? Um, more guns being uh, circulated around? Oh, I think it can, it's definitely going to have a negative effect. Um, And one of the things that 
we have to keep in mind about Brazil is that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, guns are prohibitively expensive. I don't know exactly how much they cost, but if you base it on, if you consider, you know, the low uh, minimum wage and the cost of living in many large Brazilian cities that are very expensive, um, the likelihood of one going to buy a gun that they then register, that they have a license for, uh, that they get training to use, et cetera, is very unlikely. Um, In most cases in Brazil, a lot of the gun sales and use are actually happening on the black market. Um, So about right now, um, the stat is basically there are around 17 or 18 million guns in circulation in Brazil that people know of. Um, However, half of those are unregistered, meaning they don't have a license um, and the person who owns it doesn't necessarily have the right under law to um, possess it or carry it. Um, The other problem, too, that a lot of people um, have to think about with regard to Brazil is that, again, thinking about corrupt police forces, um, former military personnel, etc., they are using their access to guns to then also help recirculate guns on the black market. So as I mentioned, the militia groups before that are made up of police officers, um, for example, the people who murdered Marielle Franco were using, were found to have been using uh, military grade police, you know, military police grade issue bullets. A regular person doesn't just have access to those. So whatever gun they were using and the bullets they were using was something that normally would have been used by Uh, military police in Brazil, which I think is just sort of a hint and a reminder of the fact that so many of the guns in circulation are are being produced in Brazil, but oftentimes for people in in an official capacity. The other thing just to add to that as well that I think has an important social impact is the fact, for example, that Taurus, which is the name of a Brazilian manufacturer, it has about three uh, factories in Brazil and one factory in Miami, which is where a lot of Brazilian, uh, former Brazilian uh, citizens live. Um, They, their stock actually went up by about 180% at the election of Bolsonaro and his announcement that he was going to loosen gun laws. Um, You've also seen as well, Bolsonaro supporters who have gone on Twitter, gone onto Instagram and other uh, streaming sites to basically pronounce that they are going to shoot up uh, black people and shoot up gay people and things like this. So I think that it gives a sort of, it, it sort of opens up the floodgates for people to be more expressive of the violence that they're going to commit against marginalized groups. And they know that their president reflects that kind of language. Correct me uh, if this is an oversimplification, but it seemed like for a while, Brazil, and and you noted that Bolsonaro doesn't uh, come from a vacuum. There are long mm-hmm. uh, established historical patterns of of uh, oppressive forces in Brazil. But it did seem like the country was making uh, some widespread progress with social democracy under Lula, who, of course, is the longtime former president who would have likely defeated Bolsonaro last year if he wasn't uh, imprisoned on questionable corruption charges. But mm-hmm. to what extent is Bolsonaro a product of the Brazilian right reacting uh, to gains made by working class people and other marginalized people uh, and other other marginalized communities in Brazil uh, sort of in the years before the reaction? Oh, it, it 100% is. Um, so if you look at the voting body, there's been some people who have focused primarily on the people who are lower middle class who voted for Bolsonaro, um, even some poor who voted for Bolsonaro. But if you look at the statistics, the actual breakdown of the vote, 
the vote that went to Bolsonaro versus the vote that did not, which is the majority, actually. Um, most people did not vote or they voted for the other candidate, Fernando Adagi. Um, but if you look at those numbers, what you see is there's a direct, it's like, I'm laughing because it's so, so direct. There's a direct correlation between class ascendancy and even race and the Bolsonaro vote. Um, so if you look at, if you were to draw a line, it's basically a diagonal line up um, in the direction of the more income you have, the higher education you have, which in Brazil is very restricted um, almost entirely to wealthy people and people with access um, socially. If you look at that that line, you kind of see that there's there's a correlation of people who the higher you know the higher their income, the more likely they were to vote for Bolsonaro. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind when we talk about um, the kind of backing that he had. And also, again, it's also racially correlative because race and class in Brazil go hand in hand in ways that I think uh, sort of make the U.S. look. I mean, it's it's so it's so exaggerated that there's it's literally like a direct line. Um, if you're wealthy, you're way more likely to be white in ways that in the U.S. there's some exceptions to, um, more so than in Brazil. And so I think that that's, that's important to keep in mind. Um, and I, I think that when you think about the, the things that were happening in the lead up to Bolsonaro's win, um, even in prior years, prior to the um, imprisonment of Lula, during the Jilma administration, those who were reacting in response to Jilma and crying about corruption and things like that, most of the times once you started to really dig and see what was behind their claims, most of it was a type of grievance um, towards the poor and towards people of color. And oftentimes these two things are more or less the same in Brazil. Um, there's a type of grievance politics that's behind it. People being upset and feeling like their taxes are going to, quote unquote, uh, you know, poor people who don't want to work or people who just want to have babies and live off the dole. Um, this kind of language that we remember, most of us who were alive during the Reagan administration, we saw once again in the Brazilian case in a hyper exaggerated way. Um, and I think that that kind of politics is what undergirds the power ascension of someone like Bolsonaro. And it continues to fuel his rhetoric uh, to the present. Um, so I think that there is there is a complete and direct connection between um, this sort of resentment of poor people being, you know, pulled out of poverty by someone like Lula and subsequently Dilma um, and having some equal or closer to equal access. Um, I think people who were who had socioeconomic power felt directly threatened by that and voted for Bolsonaro in overwhelming numbers. Bolsonaro has been a pretty known quantity for a bit in terms of just how right wing and authoritarian he is and also just how downright uh, how much of a lunatic he is. I'm thinking of that that video of him talking to that reporter in which he threatens to rape her and beat her up. Um, and yet after his election and all the awful things he said on the campaign trail and threats of violence, uh, we've, of course, uh, seen praise for him from U.S. leadership, uh, from, mm -hmm. from Israeli leadership, um, and in the U.S. press, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, uh, those sort of places. Financial press. Financial big, press. Big on Bolsonaro. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh -huh. big on Bolsonaro. Um, this, a lot of this can be explained by the fact that right-wing authoritarians stick by each other and support each other, and that's who's in power in the U.S. and who's in power in Israel. And those are the folks that run the editorial pages at the financial press outlets here in the U.S. But how far does that go? I mean, is does Bolsonaro, can he get away with pretty much anything he wants? Here he is, as you discuss, might be um, 
setting the the ground for the rise of paramilitary organizations to hunt uh, leftists or uh, people of color or LGBTQ individuals in Brazil. Is there anything that Bolsonaro could do that would elicit any sort of condemnation from uh, the U.S. or any of these people who have supported him today? To, uh, to be honest, I think um, first thing I have to address is that I wouldn't even classify him a lunatic because I think a lot of his rhetoric and behavior is very much in line with a type of patriarchal, racist, uh, you know, capitalist driven politics that's been at the heart of many societies and governments, Brazil, of course, included in this. Um, so I don't I don't even want to use that kind of language with regard to his his response to the populace. because He's more I think calculated. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think it's a matter of uh, mental illness or or a deviation. In fact, from a lot of things that we've heard in the Brazilian case before, because you have to remember that there was a military dictatorship where um, this kind of violence was meted upon the population on a regular basis and a standard. Um, but I think. This question about the connection and the praise that he's received from, um, you know, countries like the United States and, and Financial Times and Israel as well goes back to this economic question. Um, they have a lot to gain with his 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 economic plan because he has in power right now someone by the name of Paulo Guedes, who is his finance minister or was at least advising him um, in the lead up to the campaign or, or during the campaign, excuse me. And he's he's a product of, you know, the University of Chicago, people known as the Chicago Boys, um, the same types who uh, ran the austerity program during Pinochet's rule in Chile. And so I think we have to bear in mind the fact that they have a lot, the, the, the West and capitalists in the West have a lot to gain from a presidency like that of Bolsonaro because he's basically um, giving free reign to those corporations to operate in Brazil in ways that in previous years, while Lula and Dilma, of course, welcomed uh, corporations and things like that, it wasn't quite as open as what Bolsonaro wants to do. I mean, he's basically said he wants to liquidate uh, the Amazon in ways that I think in pr in the past, while not perfect um, and certainly riddled with flaws as well, but previous governments had tried to at least show some semblance of concern about the environment and put in place some protections to limit access by corporations to foresting and, and deforestation, excuse me, and things like that. Um, he and his ilk also want to privatize, for example, Petrobras, which is the Brazilian oil company. Um, and this is something that the U.S. has kind of been angling for for years, starting very far back. But what we saw at its at its height with uh, the Obama administration, actually, who was spying on Dilma's administration precisely to understand and what was going on with potential privatization of Petrobras, which she did not do. Um, so I think we have to we have to consider that. Also, the weapons sale issue. I mean, let's just be frank. A lot of the connection between Brazil and Israel is not one of some sort of cultural affinity, which is what both Bolsonaro and Netanyahu have been trying to present, um, as if Netanyahu cares somehow about the, you know, the Jewish population in Brazil. It has nothing to do with that and entirely to do with the fact that um, Israel creates arms that Brazil wants to buy and put in place in its poorest neighborhoods. So, for example, the governor of uh, Rio recently elected, who's a big Bolsonaro fan and of the same party of Bolsonaro, recently traveled to Israel with Bolsonaro's uh, one of Bolsonaro's sons to buy drones that shoot down upon the populace indiscriminately. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think and, and of course, you know, Bolsonaro has mentioned that he's going to move the embassy to Jerusalem and things like that. So I think a lot of this is more about what can they get from each other? How can I scratch your back? You can scratch mine, as opposed to some sort of, um, 
you know, other other rhetoric that they're using to defend um, these new alliances. And I think also that there is these connections that are being made to serve to benefit directly um, the capitalist systems in these Western countries. I don't think they're going to interrupt Bolsonaro's, um, you know, violence um, and rhetoric until perhaps he does something that signals a type of protectionism, which at this point he hasn't stated that he plans to do. We have been uh, discussing, uh, well, touching upon uh, some of these historical patterns, uh, but I was wondering, as as a historian, if you thought there were any, uh, if there are any other unique historical patterns uh, uh, about Brazil that that we should be aware of in the Bolsonaro era, acutely aware of in the in this era. Or, or just any other historical topics uh, related to Brazil uh, that you might that you think might be uh, worth discussing now. Oh man, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know one of the things that I I keep emphasizing um, in discussions that I've had with other people and as well as talks that I've given about the situation, um, I think. We have to be careful not, first thing, we have to be careful not to graft upon Brazil um, our sort of U.S.-based opinions on elections. I've seen some people trying to sort of copy-paste what happened in 2016 onto what happened in Brazil without any sort of careful attention to the predecessors of people like Bolsonaro. Um, hey, and God, just, just didn't people, go to know, Wisconsin. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's not quite like that. There were some some weakenings of ties between the PT and um, labor organizations and things like that. But it was not anything close to the degree of what we saw the Democrats do um, in the U.S. and and the Clinton campaign. But I, I think people just kind of get lazy in their analysis and and say it was the same thing when it wasn't. Um, but, I, but the other thing I caution as well is that sometimes I think people in the same vein have a tendency to try to kind of um, sympathize with Bolsonaro voters or coddle the, what we saw, you know, the, the people who were um, engaging in supporting people like Bolsonaro and voting for his, his delegates in, in the legislature as well. I think we have to be careful and understand that a lot of um, any sort of pro-fascistic, pro-fascistic or pro-fascist angling in Brazil has roots. It's not something that is new or anti-establishment or, um, you know, somehow innovative and different. I mean, it goes back to the fact that Brazil was a slave-holding society until 1888. And even then, it continues to have, um, you know, sort of slavery off the record. Um, and, and I think we have to understand how that system has pervaded in Brazil and remain sort of in practice in a lot of ways, because every attempt that was made to kind of uproot these diff these, um, these longstanding practices has been pretty much, you know, crushed. I mean, every time Brazil gets, gets its wings and is like, okay, we're doing democracy now. Cool. Something happens. They, they befall a dictatorship or they have to deal with a fascist coming into office. Um, and, and Brazil has gone through so many different changes throughout its, it just the 20th and 21st century alone that I don't think we can have the same, we can just like, you know, move over our analysis that we have on the United States into that of Brazil. The other thing I just wanted to say and, and add really quickly that I often also say is the fact that a lot of the language Bolsonaro was using was explicitly racist and explicitly classist, explicitly sexist, explicitly homophobic um, in ways that 
many people were shocked to see about Brazil because I think there's this idea that like Brazil is a multiracial paradise where like everyone is free to be who they are and there's no restriction upon, you know, um, your, your identity and things like that. Um, but the reality is just that a lot of that for many years has sort of been hidden. Um, and it's not to say that people weren't exercising that in ways that were very comparable in sometimes, uh, to, in some ways to the United States, there's, you know, socioeconomic and racial segregation and hyper segregation, in fact, um, in terms of where people live, where people go out to eat, you know, where people go to school, all of these things um, that we see in the United States in some ways, people didn't realize were also happening in Brazil and in, in some ways in more intense degrees. And so we have to consider how he was sort of touching on pre-existing notions and ideas that people are attitudes that people already had in some cases, but that they weren't expressing just because of the sort of social mores uh, that were against that. But in reality, I think he was, he was um, using language that people had already sort of been saying, but in more muted ways that they had sort of downplayed. So when he, he spoke, for example, about murdering all criminals, people understood that as meaning also murdering poor black people. There, was, there wasn't a need to really jump that far to, to make that connection. So that's important for us to consider as well. Finally, uh, in closing, in your most recent episode of Left POC, uh, you were talking about just how generally depressing the situation in Brazil is. And I was just wondering uh, if in closing, if there was anything inspiring going on there right now uh, that you'd like to discuss or bring up. There absolutely is. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. Cause often when I have these discussions, it does get a little dark. Right. Um, but yes. I, I, there is there is some hope. Uh, there's a silver lining out there. I think one of them is the simple fact that a lot of uh, during this past election, uh, it wasn't just a presidential election. It was also pre it was an election for the Senate and the House of Representatives. And there were many, many, many candidates on the left who ran, who were women, who were people of color, who were trans people. Even there was like the largest number of trans people running for office. And they were all running on the left. I mean, it wasn't quite like what you see in the U.S. with this, this sort of like neoliberal model that everyone is supposed to fit into neatly. Um, there were people who were running, uh, black women, for example, who were running as communists, who were running as socialists. And I think that is very inspiring because a lot of, you know, especially, like I said, poor people of color, women of color, trans women of color, were looking at the situation and saying, who are the parties that accept me? And who are the parties that are representing politics that I know will help my community. And so they ran as socialists and communists, which is like in this era, considering that they also had a fascist running for president is pretty amazing. You know, and this, this fascist who was like threatening people like them pretty directly. It's pretty brave. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was, it is, it, and it is. And I think also they, they too were inspired by people like Marielle Franco, who had recently, as we already talked about, had, had been murdered uh, in March of 2018 to see women like her run and be bold and vocal and then to have her murdered, I think actually set a fire in a lot of people and made them say, you know, we have to, we have to be brave too. Um, and we have to put ourselves out there and really advocate for our community in ways that no one else is going to do. And so I think that that is, is really inspiring and a positive thing uh, that we see happening. And also just other forms of mobilization that are happening among indigenous communities in particular um, that are happening among uh, 
uh, people who live in poor neighborhoods, who live in favelas. I mean, it is not that people are sitting there and suffering in silence. I think that there is going to be and will continue to be mobilization against uh, the things that Bolsonaro wants to do. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm concerned about what that might look like in terms of his response. But I'm at least happy to see that people are mobilizing and working, getting an early start on what could be um, really radical change in Brazil. Wendy Muse is a history PhD candidate at NYU doing research on leftist and anti-racist organizing in Cold War era Brazil. She is the creator of the podcast Left POC, which you can find on Twitter at Left POC. And you can find Wendy on Twitter at Muse Wendy, Wendy with an I. Uh, Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Wendy. And thank you for having me. And we are back live in Pisstown from the Barefoot is Legal Studios. Sam Sachs and Sam Knight. God damn it, I've got I've got Glenn Greenwald in my menchies right now. <laughs> like I tweeted at Glenn ten fucking hours ago. I didn't actually no, I didn't tweet at Glenn. I purposely did not use Glenn's handle but I woke up to Glenn defending Jesse Singal or whatever <laughs> on fucking Twitter <laughs> and I made a remark about how like it's just a matter of time before he's like dining with the intellectual dork web with the what is it Churchill Tommy Gun Society or club some bullshit that Jamie Weinstein and that dinner club the daily caller yeah dorks. anyways Glenn must be name searching himself because 10 <laughs> hours later he responded. You know, what do you say? Uh, just like Lynch proving that people who are in the intellectual dark web don't like him, which, yeah, I get. But how old were those links too? Yeah, exactly. My, my point. Yeah, that's my point is like, you know, a couple of years ago, I didn't think Glenn would be chummy with Tucker Carlson, uh, thanking Tucker for running uh pieces on a show about Glenn's homeless dog shelter. It's like, you're doing great work down there, Glenn, but you don't need to reach out to Nazi Tucker Carlson to do promotional work for you. Glenn pulling out those, uh, well, I don't know how old those links are, and maybe they're not that old, and maybe uh, Glenn will see this and lecture me about what the, uh, what the, what the, how old those links were. But I, I just get the image of... Uh, pulling out really old links like uh, Uncle Rico style, being like, I, I, I could throw the football over the mountains over there. <laughs> yeah. Living off your past glories. I Look, I, I look to, to be completely honest, I didn't understand what Glenn's tweet back to me, what he was trying to do. I mean, I, I get he was being sarcastic, but his tweet was pretty confusing. And ultimately, like, I'm a fan of Glenn. I like Glenn's writing. I or I, I used to. I still like a lot of his writing and a lot of arguments. I think he's an important voice, especially in this Russiagate debate. But the fact that he won't listen to all of these people who are telling him just, hey, stop going on Tucker Carlson show, which is extremely easy to do. You're not forced to go on white supremacist Fox News show. You don't have to do that. And like the way he responds and just turns everything back to oh what i'm only allowed to go on rachel maddow's show it's like well no she sucks too but there's a difference there but 
don't go on Rachel's show either. That's uh, that's that's the position to that's take. That's fine if you want to don't wanna... go on any of these bullshit cable news shows. If you want to draw an equivalency between Rachel Maddow promoting bombing of brown people and how that's racism, and uh, Tucker Carlson's explicit uh, immigrants are dirty uh, racism that he puts on every night. If you want to draw an equivalency to the between those, which is a bit problematic, I'd say. But if you want to draw an equivalency, fine. Don't go on any any of the networks, any of those programs. But I, no. I I don't. Glenn s- just goes. Uh, Glenn just goes on Fox News on Tucker Show. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, I and he doesn't need know, to f- defend Jesse Single. Like he no. doesn't need to. Why wade into this debate, into I, this fight? I wouldn't be opposed if people started. Uh, haranguing people who go on Maddow, telling them not to go on Maddow. They but should. I don't follow people who regularly go on Maddow because the people who regularly go on Maddow are terrible and would probably block or mute me if I were to say, if I had a Twitter account. I don't have a Twitter account, but if I were to have a personal Twitter account, I would imagine that all the... Uh, uh, I wouldn't give a shit what what the Maddow fans were tweeting, but Glenn is someone who yeah. who who uh, who who has some currency on the left. And Look, um, Glenn is not, Glenn is terminally he, online, like we are. Terminally or like online. I am at least. Sam is deleted from. He's been kicked off Twitter, although he still spends quite a bit of time on it on the old Sentinel account. But like Glenn doesn't need to be. <laughs> I don't know. It's not working out well for him. He's uh. He's hitting a bit of a cold streak, yeah. I would say. I see I'm getting owned in the chat room for uh, cutting out part of my DC Sentinel sticker on my computer here uh, to show the Apple logo. It wasn't to show the Apple logo. The Apple logo is going to show anyways because it's fucking light that's going to shine through the sticker. I'm just, you know, I, don't, I didn't want a sticker coming halfway through the logo. Aesthetically, it didn't look right to me. So I cut it. Not that that looks any better, but here we are. We got some uh, other action in the chat room, we have Joe Joseph commenting on the uh, Super Bowl champion Trump food bet, saying Trump does not know what shawarma is. <laughs> I, yeah, it's I agree. That's I think that sounds right uh, to me. Daff saying, Glenn, go on District Sentinel. Uh, we canceled Glenn, but we'd consider having him on again, probably. Yeah, we'd have Glenn come on. We've canceled him twice, but... We'll have him on again. We didn't actually cancel him, but he's like canceled in the online sense. I, you know, if Glenn wanted to start whipping up, uh, don't go on MSNBC stuff. I think he should do that. But first, he has to get off Tucker Carlson. He 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 has to be like, you know what? I made a mistake. Yes. I, I shouldn't have gone on Tucker. I'm going to. He doesn't even have to say that. I don't even care if he says I made him say. Just stop going on the show. Every time he's going to go on the show, people are going to give him shit. That's the way it's going to work. I think it comes out of an old school because uh, uh, he's talked about how Chomsky has discussed using the media to your advantage. Yeah. You don't need like just start a YouTube channel. No one. I- Below the age of 40 gives a shit about these shows anyway. Look, I could be sympathetic to Glenn's argument that it's important to go on these big time platforms to break through some of the bullshit that people like Tucker say and maybe speak to Fox News audiences that don't hear these viewpoints often. That if the issue is important enough that you think you can make a connection with these Fox viewers, then go on and do it. But Glenn's going on 
to stand for Tulsi Gabbard? <laughs> How is that an issue that's so important that you have to go on Fox News, go on the Nazi TV show to talk about Tulsi Gabbard? It's only uh, January 2019, right. and already the Tulsi bros are going out of control. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to go off on Greenwald because, like I said, I do have some respect for the guy and do appreciate his voice in a lot of debates that are ongoing right now. But he's in my mentions responding to a tweet that I didn't even tag him in from 10 hours ago. So what can I do? <laughs> All right. Shall we uh, uh, yeah, move on uh, to the poetry segment of yeah, tonight's show? I think, that's, uh, I think that's the best thing to do right now. <laughs> Uh, This is the point in the show where we thank all our new subscribers on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash district sentinel. All new subscribers get a haiku written for them and read on the air by one of the two Sams. You want to go first? I will. This is for Angelico. You know who's awful that John Cougar Mellencamp corny music man thank you Angelico this goes out to Nagisa roaming the wastelands no humans in sight at last apocalypse good thank you Nagisa this is for Evelyn don't rule it out yet a campaign slogan idea blast Trump to the sun thank you Evelyn this is for Trillbilly Workers Party government shutdown more like government shit down thank you from Piss Town <laughs> thank you Trillbilly Workers Party good to have the Trillbilly Workers Party on board here uh, we became UFOs on Patreon Yeah, good group there their latest episode uh, is very good. Very good interview they have there. Uh, finally, this is for Neri. I'm not going to lie. I would attend Trump's birthday for free McDoubles. <laughs> thank you, Neri. And thank you to all the new subscribers on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash District Sentinel. Also, hey. Buy the haiku book. Right here. The District Sentinel haiku book makes for a great Valentine's gift or get it for your parents. <laughs> They'll enjoy it, I'm sure. Uh, the good thing about doing this uh, primetime show on uh, on Wednesday night is that intern Nate gets home right around halftime of the show and starts making dinner. Hey, intern Nate. How's and- going? Good. It's good. 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 Good to have you here. Uh, <laughs> how's it going? You guys up to? Uh, good thing about uh, intern Nate being able to make appearance is he uh, gets to call in the interns, right, Nate? Interns, bring in the can. There we go. Here they come. Here they come. Here right they come. Right this way. Right this way. Oh, whoa! Don't put intern Nate's dinner in there. <laughs> bring them on in. All right. Yep. Right there. Right there is good. All right. Let's get... Yep. Okay. Thank you. Let's get to this. Garbage candidate 
Number one, Steve King. Okay, Steve King lives in our garbage can. He's been thrown in quite a few times for his explicitly racist quotes. But this latest episode of racism implicates others, too. Finally, some people on the Hill are actually listening to what he's saying and realizing it's pretty fucking problematic. By some people, I mean mostly Republicans who moved to strip King of his committee seats. Democrats, on the other hand, aren't doing shit. Rather than censuring King, they put forward a resolution condemning racism, just in general, a resolution that Steve King himself was able to support. Yes, the Democrats control the House. They have a racist in their midst that they could bring action against, but instead they put forward a resolution that even the racist could support to prove he's not a racist. They don't know how bad he looks. <laughs> this is absolutely pathetic. And it's being reported that some Dems do want to go further and actually censor King. But Dem leadership doesn't want it to happen because they're afraid it'll lead to a slippery slope with Republicans calling for censoring Rep. Rashida Tlaib for calling Trump a motherfucker. I'm serious. I'm serious. This is reporting from the Hill in which Democrats are afraid that Republicans will try to use the same censure against Rashida Tlaib. The Democrats, a party that doesn't think it's qualified to articulate the difference between saying a bad word and saying extremely racist shit. So yeah, Steve King is nominated for obvious reasons, but if he gets the most votes tonight, House Democratic leadership is going in with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wonder why they always nominate the House yeah, Democrats. Yeah, here it was, we, we didn't nominate. Steve King, and we end up with Steve yeah, King and the House Democrats. We, we, here we are, here we I was. You made a strong case, I think. But yeah, we were going to go one week without throwing House Democrats in, but I just couldn't help myself. Like, I fucking couldn't do it. Sorry. I mean, they're both slam dunks, so combine them to do some uh, 360 uh, <clears throat> East Bay funk style shit, I guess. Yeah. Moving on to garbage candidate number two, John Chait. Chait had some laser sharp insight. Facial wound. Facial wound. Walking facial wound. John Chait had some laser sharp insight on Elizabeth Warren's support for public schools service by the way that impacts the income of Chait's wife, who uh, works in the charter school industry. The New York Magazine's most irritating scold came out with a column titled, quote, what happens when Elizabeth Warren sells out to powerful interests? Now, the powerful interests that Chait was talking about are actually teachers unions, <laughs> the under siege teachers unions who are being attacked by everyone from uh, state budgets and their austerity measures to the Supreme Court and their rulings on agency fees. Anyway, they were opposing shadowy billionaires and investment firms supporting a failed ballot initiative for more charter schools in Massachusetts. This was the nefarious thing Elizabeth Warren was doing for powerful interests. When it was pointed out to Chait on Twitter what this was all about, he came out with this which sounds like he heard it directly from his charter school wife, if she can even stand to be in his presence anymore. Quote, the donors to the charter schools may be rich, but their interest in this issue is philanthropic, making it quite different than an interest group protecting its own income. End of quote. That was a, in the form of a tweet. I wish I had the graphic of that tweet, but that tweet is another contender for worst tweet <laughs> ever when that tournament gets fired up in a few months. Yeah, it's... it's 
just pure interest that these billionaires are uh, supporting an assault on the idea of universal not-for-profit education. This is just out of the kindness of their heart that they're doing that. It's just a coincidence these billionaires are attacking conventional public schools as the source of all problems in America for the poor when public schools perform among the best in rich neighborhoods, among the best in the world in rich neighborhoods. Nothing untoward this at all, this massive assault on public schools by billionaires, according to John Chait, a rotting human cucumber who's nominated this week for the garbage can, especially because he didn't even disclose what his wife does until people shat on him and he updated his post with a whiny note about it. (laughs) Garbage candidate number three, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard announced this week she will run for president and a Twitter personality named Schmeichel Tracy has had a really busy, busy week ever since, which is sort of why Gabbard is nominated. She's a bad candidate who attracts the worst kinds of supporters, which is what you'd expect after all. Wait, we got to pull up Michael Tracy's avatar again, because I, I, (laughs) how does he, how do you think that's a good thing? Like, that looks like a, a South Park caricature of a neck beard. <laughs> and that's that's what he's going with. This is, yeah. this is my... <laughs> yeah, he's been on a kick this week. Uh, Gabbard, anyway, she's a big supporter of the war on Trump, big supporter of the far-right Modi government. Uh, she's She called for arming Ukrainians. She's taken anti-immigrant and anti-refugee votes. She was open to the idea of serving in the Trump administration. She used to hold pretty abhorrent views toward the LGBTQ community. Is there anything else I'm missing? I mean, there's a lot of... I think you hit a lot of the uh, important bases there. Anyways, yeah, Gabbard, not to be trusted. So similar to why Joe Biden was nominated last week, it might be a good idea to throw some of these folks in the garbage can before they can do damage by running for president. Tulsi, you're nominated this week. Oh, shit. We just got 983 Twitter notifications from Michael Tracy. (laughs) Great. Well, I see you nominated Tulsi Gabbard, but not (laughs) Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Uh, speaking of people who talk like that, garbage candidate number four, Ben Shapiro. Shapiro is a right-wing pundit who brands himself as the cool kids philosopher. So he predictably has lost his damn mind about AOC since she was elected to Congress. In fact, he lets her know like 10 times a day on Twitter, incessantly posting at her and posting stories about it on his billionaire-funded website that basically only exists to aggregate Ben Shapiro tweets. (laughs) (laughs) Here's one graphic. You got that that graphic up? Uh, Six reasons AOC is the leftist Trump was uh, one post from yesterday. Uh, Glad you're qualified for something. Shapiro also posted at Ocasio-Cortez this week when she tweeted about having been a bartender. Glad you're qualified. Making fun of her past as a bartender. This coming from a guy who's never had a job that wasn't handed to him by conservative mega donors, basically to post smug racism online all day to unfuckable college <laughs> Republicans. <laughs> Look, Shapiro is mad at AOC, yes, for ideological issues, but also because she could get elected to Congress and people like her, and he's just a shrill, try-hard, intolerable piece of country club shit. He is a humanoid equivalent of a deflating helium balloon. And this week, Ben Shapiro is nominated for the garbage can. 
Garbage candidate number five, Arnie Duncan. Oh, go off, King. Tens of thousands of public school teachers in Los Angeles are on strike this week, which is badass. It's one of the few good pieces of news in our national hellscape. So naturally, a former Obama official is stepping forward to shit all over it. (laughs) Obama's former education secretary, Arnie Duncan, wrote an op-ed in The Hill urging the teachers not to go on strike this week, saying that pay raises in in smaller classrooms sizes cost money and LA just doesn't have that money. He then started spewing this garbage, quote, let's never forget the impact of a potential strike on Los Angeles's most vulnerable students. Students who live in poverty and who are already behind will spend days or weeks not learning in the classroom. Blah, 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 blah. He then says, it's just like a family. When adults fight, it's kids that lose. Sounds like he's said that to his wife to uh, <laughs> to try to keep her quiet. Jesus Christ! Yeah, shut up. When stab. adults fight, <laughs> why don't you go windsurfing with your former boss instead of trying to undermine actual working people's movements? Scab, Arnie Duncan, you're nominated for the garbage can. Gonna have to uh, peel him off because of the scab thing. Yeah, for some reason, uh, I said that. Uh, garbage candidate number six, Theresa May. Mm. The British Prime Minister suffered suffered a humiliating defeat, befitting of the absolute fucking clod that she is. May's Brexit plan lost in the House of Commons by 230 votes. The defeat led to the call of a no-confidence vote by Jeremy Corbyn, which only lost by a narrow margin earlier today, less than two dozen votes. May is now trying to proceed to work out a deal that will pass Parliament by the end of March. Britain is currently scheduled to leave the EU then without any kind of deal whatsoever. Now, Corbyn is trying to get May to take the no-deal option off the table and to extend Britain's EU membership at least temporarily so the whole of Europe isn't just thrown into chaos at the end of March. May says she won't take the option off the table, Corbyn, sensibly, is therefore refusing to discuss a plan Parliament can support because May is a vile, incompetent moron who only has one mode, and that's pander to the far right. It's pointless trying to help May's government do anything but collapse, especially since she won't stop mollifying the hardline Brexit weirdos who refuse to take the no-deal card off the table. She may have survived the confidence vote, but perhaps we can take Theresa May off our table if we throw her in the garbage can. Yeah, using that parliamentary lingo there. All right, we've got Theresa May, we've got Arnie Duncan, we've got Ben Shapiro, we've got Tulsi Gabbard, we've got facial wound John Chait, and we've got Steve King. It was a blowout this week. It was. It was pretty clear. You ready for this? Steve King, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, there, there go- it is. Oh, there goes your alt account on Gab, which you cannot post from in there. <laughs> Fucking weirdo. That is the show, District Sentinel Radio Live. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you watched, consider subscribing at patreon.com slash district sentinel. Five bucks a month helps support a news co-op here in Town. We've got bonus content every day, every weekday at least, coming out for you. Subscribe to our SoundCloud, where we release free audio content on a near daily basis as well. 
Hit subscribe on YouTube while you're here. Also, follow us on Twitter at the DC Sentinel and follow us on Facebook. Thank you to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Subscribers, we'll see you tomorrow for the Sentinel Hangout. We're here in DC so that you don't have to be.